I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you James Nestor is an author and journalist whose recent book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, is one of the most interesting books Sean has read in recent years. Breath explores how humans have lost the ability to breathe properly over the past several hundred thousand years and is now suffering from a laundry list of maladies, snoring, sleep apnea, asthma, autoimmune disease, all because of it. This conversation will be drawing on thousands of years of medical texts and recent cutting-edge studies in pulmonology, psychology, biochemistry, and human physiology to break down the importance of our breathing and how we can improve our overall health and well-being. Anyone looking for a new job this year, or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. James, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Thanks a lot for having me. I'm excited to dive into more about your story, your work, because it's had such an impact on me. But I would love to know, say we're getting ready for a meeting, a podcast interview, or just want to get started in the day. Is there any breath work that we can do that just helps us elevate ourselves a little bit, but but not get too much adrenaline going? Anything like that that we could implement? I think the breath practice that I rely on the most is so deceptively simple that people don't think it's going to do anything until you try it out. All it is is inhaling to a count of about five to six seconds and exhaling for that same amount. And you do this over and over, maybe five, 10 times, and you'll notice a calm clarity coming over your body because that's when your body is working at peak efficiency, which is exactly what you want. What is it about that specific five second to six second timing uh, that's so impactful? It synchronizes the different systems of the body into a state of coherence, which is why it's called coherent breathing. And you can see this if you have a heart rate variability monitor. You can see it by looking at your blood pressure as well. Your heart rate goes down, more circulation comes to your brain, and your body enters this state of balance. And it's so simple. It takes just a few seconds to start feeling that. And what I love about it as a science journalist is it's measurable you can see the data instantly. What you, you mentioned doing that for a few minutes. What about extended time periods? Are, are there additional benefits to that? Or after a few minutes, you should be good? There's no such thing as having too much peak efficiency in your body. So you can do this as long as you want. 
What you want to not do is to push it. A lot of us tend to learn something and then want to do it 24 hours a day all the time. If you're not doing it, you're going to beat yourself up. Don't think about breathing like that. Start slow. Start with three-second inhales, three-second exhales. Then increase the amount of time. You don't want your body to be taxed while you're doing this. The point is to restore yourself and to get balance in that. What's that's exactly what this breathing practice does. Yeah, a lot of us, me included here, have that tendency to just, when we hear about something new, let's let's just push it to the max, let's rev that up. So it, it's certainly reassuring hearing from an expert like yourself that that's not always the best way to go. Usually that's not the best way to go. I, I would love, because for, for me, foundationally, one of the big things was just more awareness around breathing through the nose as opposed to the mouth. And I got exposed to Brian McKenzie, got to do some work with him a few years ago, and he really got me into nasal breathing during workouts. I think your work has just transcended that for me and really shed more light on the benefits of breathing through the nose as opposed to the mouth more consistently, and especially now when I sleep. I would love for you to dive into the big differences between uh, nasal breathing versus breathing through the mouth, and then we can dive into some more specifics there. So the main difference is that the nose is our pathway that filters air and conditions air and heats it and pressurizes it so that by the time that air gets to the lungs, it is prepared. We can get 20% more oxygen breathing through our noses than we do equivalent breaths through our mouths. If you think that's not going to make a difference when you're working out, uh, actually any time in the day, you're crazy. So we've known this for, for decades and decades, and yet we have become a population of habitual mouth breathers, elite trainers like Brian McKenzie, um, whom I know, and Patrick McEwen, they've been saying this stuff for years and years. And now people are just starting to really latch on to it. So when we breathe through the mouth, we don't have any of those structures that the nose has in our mouth. So we're unable to pressurize air. We're unable to filter it with all of the tissues and hairs we have in our nose. So that air... <gasps> just go straight in. And a lot of people think, oh, I get more breath more easily that way. That's always a good thing. It's not. You want to control that breath. It's about the quality of the breath, not just the quantity. It's a somewhat joking question, somewhat serious though. People with really hairy noses, do they have better filtered air by the time it reaches their lungs? There is one study that found that people who have a larger density of hair in their noses will be proportionally less apt to have asthma than those who don't. Um, so, uh, you know, we've evolved with hair in our noses for a reason. And these people who are so into removing all the hair in their noses, I don't know if they're doing themselves any big favors. Yeah, so maybe put, put away the trimmers there. I'm always intrigued about evolution and, and why all of a sudden did, did humans stop breathing through their nose and start breathing through their mouths. Did, did your research uncover that at all? It wasn't all of a sudden. So this was a very gradual process. So I never thought when I was researching and writing a book about breathing that I would be spending so much time looking at ancient human skulls and hanging out with biological anthropologists and dentists. That's just not where the path was going to be leading me, or at least that's what I thought. But I wanted to understand the core issues behind why humans have become the worst breathers in the animal kingdom, uh, which is very true. And all you need to do to learn and understand that is to look around, is to look in the mirror, is to look at all of the people that you know who have asthma, who snore, who have sleep apnea, who have chronic sinusitis, on and on and on. We're completely messed up. So in order to find that core problem, you have to go back in time. And what I learned is our ancestors had a very different face 
facial structure. They had a very different sinus structure. They had very different mouths. They had mouths that could accommodate all of their teeth. Uh, you know, cavemen weren't getting their wisdom teeth removed. They weren't getting braces. And yet, hmm, they all had perfectly straight teeth. So once I learned that, I thought, my God, there's a, such a weirder story behind all of this breathing. I was able to go into the field and lucky enough to talk with some experts who showed me what they've been learning. And what they've been learning is our mouths have grown so small, our teeth no longer fit for one. That's a bummer. Our profiles have changed. That's another bummer. But a small mouth, a different profile has made it harder for us to breathe. That, be, that means we have a smaller airway, which is why so many of us are suffering from so many chronic respiratory issues. So I think it's important to, to look at the past as a prologue to the future on how to base ourselves, how to create change in the future. If we weren't messed up before and we're messed up now, what happened and how do we change that? Speaking about the past, to, to understand the future, I'm curious, how did you even get involved and interested in breath to begin with? Well, I was not seeking out a book idea, and I especially was not seeking out a book idea based on breathing. There are hundreds of books on breathing. I bought some of them, um, you know, how to breathe really fast, how to breathe really slow. You can buy books on pranayama that have 400 different breathing techniques, all with these crazy names and these very intricate details of exactly how to do them and specifically when, what times of the day. So I thought that, I was like, I don't want to write a book about that. That's already been done. And until I started learning these deeper stories behind it. So, you know, that's not a good answer to your, to your very direct question here, but it was a number of things. It wasn't one thing where I said, aha, I'm writing a book about breathing. It was so many things that happened after so many years um, until I realized, I came to my agent, I said, I think there's a book here. And she said, a book on breathing, forget about it. I spent another six months on it, came back. She said, okay, <laughs> maybe there's something here. Yeah, well, I, I don't even think we necessarily need direct answers, and, and that's almost one of the things I love, right? I know I know there's a lot of creators that listen, and, and they're thinking, all right, when are there enough signals that I actually dive all in and, and put the dedicated time you need into an effort like a book? For, for you, are there certain metrics that you've used even for your past books, or is it just kind of just a, a subconscious intuition of, you know what, there's enough here, I'm going to dive all in? Yeah, I've, I've done enough books and written enough to know that Books will destroy you. They will destroy your life. They will destroy your body because you're going to be sitting either on airplanes, uh, in my case, in, in the back and coach, um, or you're going to be sitting in front of a computer or in front of a, you know, a Starbucks in Oklahoma City for, for five hours waiting for a connection. So it has to be something that you are willing to make that sacrifice for. And by that, it has to be something you are absolutely passionate about. So no one I know has gotten into writing for the money, okay? The money sucks. You can go into so many other fields and make 20 times as much cash for less effort. But we do it for another reason is because we're curious people. And if we can fuel that curiosity, if we can learn more, 
then that's great because I, by nature, am a very curious and questioning person. If it happens to be that you find a subject that other people are curious about and you can answer some of their questions, then that's the most beautiful thing, right? You're, you're the messenger for this information. And uh, what a great relationship to have with, with a reader, to take them into the worlds that you've been taken into and work as sort of a chaperone to these different subjects and to be totally objective and honest in the process. And that to me is another thing that I think is very important. I don't wanna pick a subject that I have a preconceived notion about. I don't wanna pick a subject that I already have very strong beliefs around. I wanna pick a subject that I know nothing about so I can truly be objective. Um, I have no uh, you know, skin in the game on either side of these controversial issues. All I wanna know is what works. And I think a lot of re readers have that feeling as well. They're, they're approaching subjects like that. And it's so hard, it's getting a lot harder today to find information that is objective like that. So I think that the, the main thing is the passion for it. Is this something I want to dedicate five years every single day, every single night that I'm going to be dreaming about? Because that's where you have your real breakthroughs when you're dreaming. Is this a subject that, that has enough depth to it to intrigue me for that amount of time. James, could you entertain me a little bit more with kind of the best thoughts you have while you're sleeping when, when your subconscious is at play? Is this something you tap into actively during your writing process? When uh, it, it is. Uh, so <laughs> when, when I'm working on a book, this is not a logging on at nine and logging off at five. I'm in 24 seven every single day of the week and I'm there as long as I need to be there until you ship it off, press return to your editor on the final draft, which is the single best feeling anyone can ever feel in the whole universe. And then it's on to something else. Or in my case, it's on to just take a, a long break and try to figure out what you want to do next while you repair your brain and your body from that arduous process. So when you're thinking about something all the time, at nighttime, I read, and I'm not reading fiction. I would love to read fiction. I'm reading books that are associated with the subject that I'm studying. And I read hundreds of books associated with these various subjects um, because I want to understand the broad picture. I read from both sides of the spectrum, very conservative people, very liberal people. So once you start thinking this way, um, and once you start spending all of your daytime doing this, this will start bleeding into your subconscious. And that stage right before you go to sleep, the hypnagogic state, Edison used this for his, you know, a, a thousand different patents, but that's when everything suddenly comes very clear to me, which completely sucks because that's when your body is trying to shut down from everything. But I have a pen and I have a pad of paper and uh, I will wake up, write down, it will happen again, I'll wake up again. And this is how I've figured out chapter orders. This is how I figure out how to deal with different subjects uh, that were really causing me a hard time. I don't rely on it, it just happens naturally. Speaking of that natural process, have you found there's usually an amount of time, meaning you've done enough research into a subject where those thoughts can be crystal clear while your subconscious is at play? Is there an amount of time usually that goes into that? I think it just, once it becomes all consuming, yeah. then it starts happening. And usually for me, that's within a few weeks of it being all consuming and for me being consumed within that subject. 
And it, this doesn't happen every night. It's not something you can rely on. I know that there are people that would love to create a pill that could do this, and I'd be the first to start buying that. But uh, it's this, I don't want to sound too wishy-washy here, but it is a truly mysterious process. And people don't want to mention this too too often. Stephen King does, and I think he does so eloquently. But there's a mystery to writing that you can never really describe. There's a mystery to the research. There's a mystery to this process. We have all these tasks figured out. We have software programs. You know, we have now our phones can transcribe in real time. Amazing tools. But they're still clouding all of that is this fog of mystery. And I don't try to understand that mystery. I just love to be within it whenever it happens. And if that's not a new agey enough uh, answer for you, I don't know what is, but but there it is. The, those are my beliefs. No, I, I absolutely love that. I'm actually from a very similar mindset and, and, and love the creative elements of work and play and love tapping into that as well. I, I would love to know, though, for you, the writing process, because you mentioned the day you hit send to the publisher is just the best feeling ever. For you, what's your favorite part of the process? I love every part of the process. I really do, which isn't to say each of those parts is 100% good times. Uh, There's a lot of time that it's very difficult and frustrating and you're doubting whether you picked the right subject, you're doubting yourself, you're doubting why you became an author, why you became a journalist, all of that. And that's constant. And some people that really gets them down, but but it fuels me because I'm kind of competitive by nature. So, Maybe I'll start with my least favorite part of the process is after you've done all of this amazing research where you've somehow figured out how to get someone to send you around the world for a couple of years and talk to some of the most interesting people in the world, collect their stories, hang out with them, get an inside view into what they do into their culture. Then you come back and you're like, okay, well, now I got to pay the rent, right? Uh, How do I make a book out of all of this? So that initial process is very fun. The creative where you can just dream big. This is fantasy land, right? You can write about whatever. But once you start drafting in that middle, that second act of writing a book is to me where I find most of the frustrations. Because I probably wrote seven different drafts of this book. Um, The final one I thought was good was about 270,000 words. (laughs) which was, um, you know, it ended up being 85,000 words. So it's so much work and so much writing. And that's where it starts to take a toll on your body because you're tapping away all day, every day. Things aren't working. You get frustrated. You rip it up in whatever digital sense and you start over again. And you have to keep coming at this fresh and excited. Otherwise, it'll wear you down and that will show in the pros. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? Uh, it was not something that I made a conscious decision about. You can hear a theme happening yeah, right. now. This interview. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I've always been interested in writing. I've always loved to read. I did major in English, but I planned to be a teacher. I really wanted to be a teacher. There's teachers in my family, and I wanted to, to teach American Lit. That's what I wanted to do. And I actually got certified to do that. I got my master's and, and all of that was, was going to do that. Um, but then I actually got into that system and I thought, I do not have the patience to, de- to deal with, with this. 
So I became a professional writer, a, a copywriter. I wrote advertisements for billboards. I wrote magazine copy. And slowly, uh, I became uh, pretty adept at doing that, pretty successful at doing that. And, you know, had all the things that came with that. I, I was wearing some some nice clothes, Had a, was able to buy my house and, and you know. Uh, but there was something be, behind all of that work. Uh, there were areas that I enjoyed about it, the creative process, but then you're dealing with a bunch of people in the corporate world who would change their mind all the time. And I thought, wouldn't, wouldn't there be a way of extracting this creative part and just, just doing that without dealing with all of the other 90% of BS that's surrounded in this? And my answer to that was, oh, you know, write for magazines and newspapers. There was one gaping, huge obvious problem here. You make basically zero money if you are writing for magazines and newspapers. So just to fulfill my soul, while I had a full-time job and a staff and was rebuilding my house, I was writing magazine stories and newspaper stories. And it was the funnest thing I could ever imagine doing to be able to once again go into these worlds to have an excuse to knock on someone's door, to call someone up randomly, and uh, to let them uh, let you in. Uh, and then even better with with some of the weird weirder stories I was doing, you get to step back out into your life, into your comforts, and then write about it from an outsider's view. And my God, I just loved it. And, and I did that for years and years and years until I had enough magazine and newspaper work where, and this was years ago, so don't do this now, kids, bad <laughs> idea. But at the time, I had enough work that uh, I, I cut the cord. I said, I'm never, ever really going to be happy writing ads, you know, writing, writing catalog copy. And so I cut the cord and lived uh, very precariously for a few years until I, I found my, my footing in books. You mentioned having the opportunity to to go into someone's living room to have a great conversation with them. This doesn't have to, to do with your research into breath, but is there a conversation like that that has stuck with you the longest? Every conversation I've had with people when you come in cold like this, you learn something so new and so fresh. And I realize how cliched this sounds, but I'm doing a bit of prep work. You know, this isn't some random dude on the street, you know, at, at, at the bus stop. These are people who have already done something that's interesting enough to garner my attention or an editor's attention. So, so you, you've, you've really handpicked um, some of the more interesting people to talk to, but these people are often very cagey at the beginning, so it's your job to comfort them. And in my case, to comfort them and say, hey, I'm not going to slander you. I'm not coming here to, to smile and be nice and then write some BS piece at the end of it. I'm just curious. So I'm going to tell everyone what I see, but I just want to learn your story. And I love to hear these stories, uh, and, and they're ceaseless, ceaselessly fascinating to me. So, you know, I won't say one in particular. There's always surprises everywhere you go. And there were more surprises with this book than, than I've ever had in my life as far as these interviews with people and all the left turns it took. Yeah. Was there a surprise that came out of the, of the research for breath that you just had, had you dumbfounded that you were just sitting there shaking your head saying, I cannot believe this is true? Well, yeah, there, there were so many, <laughs> you know, and, and that's why that book is is like, at least some of the stories to me, I was like, cool. Yeah, this is 
scientifically impossible. No one is ever going to believe this. Then you look at the science and then you measure it and it's 100% true and it's been true for decades and no one's been talking about it. So, you know, a few examples are this 92-year-old French guy who had chronic lung inflammation when he was growing up and uh, his lungs were going to be removed. Parts of his lungs were going to be removed until a missionary came in and said, there's this thing called yoga. You should check it out. He not only recovered 100%, but he developed this superhuman ability to heat himself up in, in the snow. And he's like the Wim Hof before Wim Hof. His name is Maurice DeBar, still alive right now. So, and, and to be able to talk to people like that and, and say, well, why aren't you on the, the front cover of the New York Times? Not everyone's interested in being on the front cover of newspapers or on Instagram. You know, some people are just interested in doing what they're doing. So that that's what I learned is not everyone's on the internet either. You have to dig in so deep to find the real stories, to find the story behind the story and the person behind that story. And that's what I love to do. I, I absolutely love to go rooting around. Yeah, speaking of rooting around, I know you understood how this impacts athletic performance and things like that. I know we have a, a lot of sports, either coaches or even just sports players that listen, and they would be love to hear some more specifics around this. So I'm wondering, obviously, as we're exerting ourselves, our, our breath seems to get more rapid increase, <laughs> kind, of, kind of that. Are we doing ourselves a disservice by over-breathing during times of elite competition? Should we try to slow that breath down, or is the speed of breath really important for us? You should be breathing in line with your metabolic needs. Most of us breathe well over that, just like how most of us eat too much, right? We breathe too much as well. We've known this for decades and decades and decades. And especially elite trainers have known this and they've kept it very secret for a long time. The word is getting out now through people like Brian McKenzie. But one, one story is of Carl Stau who did just this. So this is a guy in the 1950s was a choral conductor found a new way of breathing to help his singers breathe better or breathe and sing better so they wouldn't constantly be running out of breath they had more resonance and he was invited to help rehabilitate people with emphysema who were left for for dead essentially in the va hospitals on the east coast these people who were left for dead walked out of the hospitals with nothing more than learning how to breathe there's scientific proof there's data there's x-rays it's all there so then he went and started teaching athletes how to breathe properly. He noticed that with runners, track runners, they tended to take a big inhale right before they were about to, to take off. The gun goes off and then they start breathing. You know, and that it's terribly inefficient. So he was the one who taught the 1968 men's Olympic team. Uh, track and field team who went to the Mexico City Olympics at an elevation of like, what, 6,000, 7,000 feet. They didn't use oxygen before and after the race. They were the only team not to do so. And they destroyed everybody. So, and they said that they were able to do this because they understood the power of their breathing, specifically the quality of their breathing over the quantity. And this is something that right now is starting to sweep into training. I, I'm amazed that it took so long. But again, the science has been there, uh, proving that it works. And you talk to these people who have adjusted their breathing, gone to nasal breathing, who have learned how to breathe more slowly. And they're, you know, 
their performance increases dramatically. Their recovery is cut in half. And, and Brian McKenzie can tell you all about this. This is what he does every single day. Well, I would love to know when you when you talk about the, the quality versus quantity there, what does that actually look like? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, so again, so many of us are concerned that we're going to run out of breath. So we're constantly over breathing, right? But what you want to do is, as I mentioned, breathe in line with your metabolic needs. Because why would you want to run a car, right? Just have your foot down at idle uh, when you're not going anywhere. You want to be running a car in line with its needs so you can conserve the most gas. This is exactly how the human body works as well. When we are over-breathing, we're causing our heart rate to speed up, right? We're causing vasoconstriction throughout our bodies, and we're actually denying ourselves oxygen because we're breathing too much CO2 out. We need a balance of CO2 and oxygen to work at peak efficiency. And that's what breathing slowly allows you to do. So this idea where you see these football guys on who are at sea level, mind you, who have an, who go and, and inhale oxygen on the sidelines, that is doing nothing. So so inhaling oxygen for a healthy body at sea level will do nothing. What you need to do is learn how to breathe slower, okay? And by breathing slower, getting those CO2 and oxygen levels in balance with one another, you get more oxygen more easily. That means you're running more efficiently. And that's exactly what an athlete needs. Yeah, you, you threw yourself actually in the lab experimenting on yourself with this, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did all kinds of experiments. What, what for you was was the most difficult and challenging? Because I'm sure a lot of people are listening. But what, what do you mean? If I'm sprinting, slow down my breathing. Yeah, I always have that that urge. To, I need I need a deeper breath, and I know that was something that you battled through. So I think it would, it would be really clear um, to, to understand what people should be experiencing and how they can think that through. So that urge to breathe is not dictated by oxygen. It's dictated by carbon dioxide. So it's rising levels of carbon dioxide that trigger our need to breathe. So if you're jogging around and you're like, I'm out of breath, I'm not getting enough O2. No, your tolerance for CO2 has reached its threshold and that's what's triggering you to breathe. So once you start acknowledging that, and understanding that you can start playing around with this. Brian McKenzie has found, I keep mentioning him, Patrick McEwen as well. There's so many trainers doing this. Their key is to get the CO2 tolerance up so you can be comfortable with more CO2. And there's been studies that have shown the more comfortable are with you are with more CO2, the more oxygen you're going to get more easily, right? So you can take those slower breaths and not feel out of breath because your body is acclimated to that increase of CO2. So this is hard to do. Um, Breathe in line with your metabolic needs. Cool. What the hell does that mean? How am I going to measure that when you're out and about? The first thing you need to do is use this natural device we have that helps us measure this very efficiently. It's called our noses because you'll notice it's harder to breathe through your nose than it is through your mouth, okay? That's for a reason, that pressurized air, that air that's slowed down, it allows your lungs more time to extract more oxygen. 
That's one of the reasons why we get so much more oxygen breathing through our nose than we do through our mouth. Yeah, you mentioned, I think, earlier, it was 20% more oxygen right through our nose. Yes, it's 20% it's twenty when you're breathing at the same pace. But uh, Patrick McEwen found that breathing at a rate at rest of about 18 to 20 breaths per minute, we use about 50% of that air. Like, okay, 50%, that's pretty good. If you slow down to six breaths per minute, you'll use about 85% of that air, a 35% increase in efficiency. So when you start playing with this, when you're working out, you can just see what it's going to do for your endurance and your performance. So an athlete, why would an athlete want to unnecessarily expend energy? That's exactly what you're trained not to do. You're trained to be efficient. So why would you train every other muscle in your body, but you forget about the 10 pounds of muscles that control your breathing? It's, it's crazy. We get most of our energy from our breath, not from food. You know, we're on keto and paleo and vegan and vegetarian and, and diet, of course, plays a huge role in this, but so does breathing. So you, you have to look at the whole body, this whole picture, if you really want to understand how health works and how performance works. James, I'm sure you're just as baffled by this as I am. And that's around, I mean, like you were just mentioning, we, we focus on diet, nutrition, exercise. If we don't breathe for a few minutes, we're dead. Why has there not been more of a focus on breath previous to the past few years here? Because you breathe unconsciously, right? You don't have to think about what a wonderful thing. You know, how awful would it be to consciously have to take each breath? And so when we don't have to think about something, when it's running in the background, we don't really consider it. You know, humans are very reactionary. It's only when things go really, really bad that we start paying attention to stuff. Uh, look what happened with COVID. It's like, okay, now you can't breathe. Oh, wow, maybe breathing's really important to my health and longevity. So that's what it's taken to get this over the line. I really believe that. Now a lot of people are interested in lung health and their respiration and their breathing. And I think if there's any silver lining to this awful pandemic, uh, that's it. So I think that's one of the reasons. And uh, this is much more crass, but I wouldn't be saying this if I hadn't heard it from so many researchers, so many doctors at top institutions, but it's really hard to market breathing, yeah. right? It's very easy to market different diets and different goos and different powders and all of that. But it's it's hard to make money off of something that's simple and free and available to everyone everywhere. And so that's perhaps had an influence in this limited understanding and appreciation of our breath. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of being hard to market breath, I mean, background in copywriting, did you think your book was going to have the success and catch on and have the impact that it has had? We weren't even going to release it when, <laughs> when we did. So, you know, I had been working on this book for years and years. It had been uh, slated in catalogs. Publishing takes forever. And if there's any publishers out there, you you know what I'm talking about. Your book is done and printed five months before it comes out, right? So it had been slated for May 26th of last year. So it's been out just about a, uh, well, just over a year now. And guess what happens in the middle of March? <laughs> a respiratory pandemic. My editors are just like, you know, oh, I don't know if we can put this thing out. Uh, we, we can't print it. 
And I was just like, oh God, and haters are going to think we're doing this to like market this thing during a respiratory pandemic, even though it's already printed and in warehouses. But at the end of it, uh, you know, the publisher talked some sense into us. They said, people need to learn how to breathe right now. You know, they're, they're not able to breathe. And this is the time to do this. So, you know, to answer your question, you have no idea what happens when you release a book. And, you know, people who release a film uh, are in the same boat and other artists are in the, the same boat as well. So uh, I was predicting absolutely zero was going to happen. I thought maybe in a year, once things got to normal, I'd be able to go out and tour and be able to get the word out about this. But, uh, you know, that was a scary time in the world. It was a very scary time for me professionally. So I said, oh my God, it worked for so many years on this thing. And I think it's just going to poof away. So, uh, you know, I was pleasantly surprised when that that wasn't the case. And man, am I, am I grateful and appreciative. And especially hearing from so many people, thousands and thousands of people who have found some of the practices, some of the hacks and and at really the most, the, the awareness of breathing to have such a direct benefit on their lives. And I'll, I'll be honest, uh, several of them are pretty pissed off that they had to hear it from a, from a journalist and not from their doctors, you know, even though I learned all this stuff from doctors. So I, I think that there's a combination of, of joy and, and also a little frustration that it's taken us so long to appreciate all of this. Yeah, I think that's one of the big things, right? I mean, we, we know about so many people with, with sleep apnea and asthma and all these things, and it's always here, take this pill, do that, and so rarely is it tied to the actual breath. Uh, so I, I think it was really refreshing. Uh, I don't want this like to toot your own horn here, but yeah, your book, it was like, whoa, I was reading it and just like page after page was fascinating. So I, I bought, I think it was like a dozen copies and just started sharing shooting it off to friends because I was like, this is just so damn interesting. I don't know how I was not aware of the depths of this. Um, one, one of the practices I did pick up since reading your book is uh, actually sleeping with my mouth closed. So that way I'm only nasal breathing. Um, have you seen any long-term studies around what solely breathing through your nose at night can actually do for you for someone who had been mouth breathing previously? Well, first of all, I just have to say what a thrill it is to hear this from you and, and from others who are just like, as you're reading the book, saying, wait, what? Yeah. what? This, is, this doesn't make sense. Oh, wait, that works? Because that was my life for, for seven years. But, but the difference was I had to then, you know, find the 12 different studies that confirm these insane claims that you can heat your body up with breathing. So, uh, so it's, that's, that's thrilling to hear. And it just shows what a, what a crazy rocky road this was of, of researching, writing this book. So as far as nasal breathing, the benefits to nasal breathing, nobody is refuting this. Okay. And, and, that's what's interesting as well. You could talk to a pulmonologist, you could talk to a rhinologist, even a dentist. They all say, don't breathe out of your mouth, right? A dentist will say it's because it's going to give you cavities. You're going to change the pH in your mouth and it's going to give you cavities. We've known that. Dentists have been talking about this for 120 years. And yet 60% of beds in the U.S. Um, house a mouth breather. So something around 50 to 60% of us are are breathing through the mouth. So while we're sleeping. So as far as studies are concerned, you can look at studies of incidents of sleep apnea and snoring, and they go up precipitously 
during allergy season. Hmm. I wonder why, because our noses get clogged. We start breathing through the mouth. You can look at uh, my kooky experiment at Stanford. It's only an N2 experiment, which should mean nothing. But if anything, it was just buttressing what we already know about nasal breathing and mouth breathing and what has already been studied. And it's that when you're breathing through your mouth at night and then gravity is working against you and your head is down, your airways are going to get smaller. The tissues at the back of the mouth are going to become flappier and it's going to make you more apt to sleep, to, to snore. And, and in some cases to have sleep apnea because your mouth is open and your tongue is rocking back to the back of your throat. So just by simply closing your mouth and breathing through your nose, I found I went from forced mouth breathing in that experiment for 10 days to forced nasal breathing. While I was mouth breathing, I went from not snoring and having sleep apnea at all to snoring throughout half the night and having sleep apnea and nasal breathing, it all went away. I cannot tell you how many hundreds and hundreds, thousands now of people have written me who have had this exact same experience. And again, they're, they're pissed off that, that it took so long for them to hear it. There are two studies that are right now booting up, which is really exciting. At Stanford, Dr. Ann Kearney is booting up a study of 200 people looking at sleep tape and snoring and sleep apnea. And there's also one that's starting um, with some researchers associated with Harvard. And uh, this is an easy, simple hack that you can do. And they are going to measure across wide populations just how effective it is. I can't wait to see the research come back from that. Uh, obviously, assuming that's, that's going to be more positive and just reinforcement there for more nasal breathing. Uh, I know a few minutes ago, you were mentioning about the timing of the book coming out with COVID and all of these stressors around it. A, a lot of people, a lot of stress, anxiety, are there different techniques that you've implemented for people who all of a sudden are just feeling overwhelmed, anxiety, having some stress that can just kind of help regulate themselves a little bit better? Sure. So uh, I didn't know that breathing was directly associated with anxiety and with panic and even depression and anorexia. Who would have thought this? Until I talked to two psychologists, one of whom is a neuropsychologist at the Laureate Institute of Brain Research. That's where he was when I interviewed him. And they explained to me that populations with anxiety and panic and all of these other fear-based disorders traditionally breathe way too much. We know this because you can look at their carbon dioxide and see their carbon dioxide levels are very low. They're off-gassing too much CO2. When you constantly breathe too much, not only are you creating an imbalance of CO2 and oxygen, is you are sending constant signals to your brain that you are stressed. So 80% of the messages between the brain and the diaphragm, the body here connected through the phrenic nerve here, are from the body to the brain. So the body is telling the brain what is going on for the majority of the time, right? So if you are over breathing and your diaphragm is constantly moving up like this, these are just signals pinging your brain that you are in a state of stress and you should be releasing stress hormones and your blood sugar should be going up and you should be tense and you should continue breathing too much because when we're stressed, 
and we're in a real situation of danger, we need to be breathing a lot because we're going to be fighting something or we're going to be running away. When you're sitting in front of a computer eight hours a day and you do this, it destroys your body. You look at the majority of modern diseases right now, almost every single one of them is tied to chronic low-grade stress and the inflammation that comes with it. So learning all of this, learning the core causes of these issues, I started to understand and appreciate how breathing could fit in, specifically how slow, measured, rhythmic breathing can help reduce the symptoms of anxiety and stress and fear-based disorders, and in some cases, totally reverse it. And that's what the science has shown us. And people have been doing research into this area, again, for decades, but it just hasn't made it out to the general public. Yeah, one one of the really interesting things uh, I read about in breath was that correlation between that that five to six second breathing pattern along with with prayers and hymns. Can can you dive into this? Because I I just want to make sure I'm clear on, on what you uncovered here. I was just talking to Dr. Richard Brown at Columbia about all of this. So he was one of the pioneers in this breathing technique called coherent or resonant breathing. And it was really spearheaded by some Italian researchers who were looking at the Italian prayer cycle of the rosary, the Catholic prayer cycle. And they compared it to Omani Padmiham, which is a Buddhist mantra. And they noticed that when you recite both of these prayers, it locks into the same respiratory rate. About five to six seconds in, five to six seconds out, which equals, guess what? Five to six breaths per minute. And the ultimate breathing pattern where they found everything locked in at perfect synchrony was 5.5. So it's hard to breathe to the half second. Don't do it, okay? I've I've resorted just to tell people to to ballpark this because the whole point is to relax yourself anyway. So you don't need to pray to get these benefits of breathing this way. You can just breathe this way anytime. When you do, your blood pressure goes down, your heart rate goes down, and that stress that was completely controlling your body tends to go away. And it tends to go away because your diaphragm is no longer sending these emergency reactive signals. It's sending signals to your brain to relax and calm down. And You can use this breathing method whenever, at any time. There are several other breathing methods that you can use that have an even more powerful response than that. How how should we think about our our breath, specifically around the lungs? Like if if we're picturing our lungs as a balloon, when we're taking the six-second inhale, should we be trying to fill that up? And then the same thing when we're exhaling, should we really try to constrict that lung to completely deplete itself of oxygen? So it's really hard not to fill up your lungs in a healthy way when you're breathing at this rate and at depth, right? Um, So again, I want to steer turbo Westerners, and I include myself within this group, away from just wanting to kick your breath's ass after listening to this, this podcast. This should be done in a very soft, and rhythmic and light way. You can go kick something else's ass. Go kick, you know, your your dumbbell's ass after this. That's cool. Work out at, at that intensity. 
breathing should be done in a very light way. The, the lungs are very delicate, right? The tissues are delicate and you don't want to overdo this stuff too soon. So by virtue of the pace, you will be breathing deeper. And the ultimate goal of this is to really expand your lung capacity. As we get older, our lung capacity shrivels up. It's so sad. But if you were able to maintain that lung capacity, even expand it, you can take fewer breaths and get more energy with each breath, which is especially important when you are older and you have less energy for other things. And that's why I think breathing re-education for seniors would be the most therapeutic and useful thing we can do. Because most of the seniors that I see around are mouth breathing, they're stooped over it, they've got it all wrong and it's really sad. They'd be able to recover so much more quickly and so much more thoroughly and to maintain good health by breathing properly. Yeah, you even came across some interesting research around lifespan and overall lung capacity, right? Yeah, so this was from the Framingham study, which is like the 70 year long longitudinal study that was looking at heart health, but they ended up looking at lung health as well. And they found that the people who lived the longest had the largest lungs. So on um, the people who lived the shortest had the smallest and sickest lungs. And so some follow-up studies were done in, into this and they said the exact same thing. There was a 30-year follow-up study to that that said the quicker your lungs get smaller and your respiratory health goes down, the sooner you're going to die. And they even found with lung transplants, if patients had been transplanted with lungs that were on the smaller side, they would die sooner than those who had lungs of normal or larger size. So no matter how you get this lung capacity, you can, I guess, go out and get a, a transplant if, if you're into that kind of thing. But most of us don't need that. We just need to breathe properly. And what is yoga but a technology of stretching and expanding your lung capacity? Duh, we've known this for thousands of years. Can, can we have a, a big enough impact? Say, say we're someone who's been mouth breathing, say you're 65 years old. Are we able to expand that lung capacity enough at that time? Absolutely. Okay. And this is something like, you know, we're, we're force-fed all this stuff where a lot of people want to blame their genetics. Oh, my mom had bad teeth. I have bad teeth. Oh, my mom had this disease. I have this disease. But we're not predestined to be, you know, riddled with all of these chronic diseases that everyone else has. And lung capacity is one of those things. It's so sad that you look at these charts. They say after age, you know, 30, right around 30, we start losing lung capacity. By the time we're 70, we have the same lung capacity we had when we're 16 years old, right? That's how it happens if you don't do anything about it. But go look at free divers. These are people through the force of their own will and their own breathing have expanded their lung capacity in some cases twice the size of average adult males and a third larger than average adult females. And many of my friends have these enormous lungs because they train themselves to do this. So there aren't a lot of organs we can do this with. Good luck doing that with your, your kidney, right? Or, or your liver. Um, but you can do that with your stomach, unfortunately. But you can also do it with your lungs. Our, our lungs are malleable. And the key is to make 
the uh, rib cage and those intercostals flexible and to keep them flexible so that you can breathe more easily. Yeah, anyone who's who's more interested in, in the free diving, your book Deep, I, I read this a few years ago, which is fascinating as well. I, I know you you uncover a lot of the science behind that, and then also what's at play uh, in the ocean, the water, a lot of these other things. Very interesting work. Uh, so I, I know this is more around your book Breath, but I, I highly recommend that as well. Just speaking of this, I mean, like, what's at the core of you? I know, I know, you've mentioned just how curious you are. Like, what, what's driving the decisions behind these things you go after? Is it intuition? What you were talking about earlier? Well, I can kind of I'll, I'll answer uh, what you said uh, just earlier, right there, and and what you said at the the second half. So, just speaking of deep, uh, you know, you think when you write a book, and that book's been out six six years, six and a half years, or something. It's been out for a while, right? A, a lot of people, um, at least a lot of writers, I know once they finish the book, they're on to the next thing and they just leave it alone. But but that book has just uh, the subjects in that book, I should say, has just stuck with me, and I'm more fascinated with the people that were in that book and the subject than I ever was. And just yesterday, uh, what a coincidence! But I had a two hour conversation with Brian Bushway, who is the human echolocator. This guy lost his eyesight when he was 13 and learned how to train his brain to see with the frequencies of sound instead of the frequencies of light. And so now we're working on a couple of projects right now. Uh, I'm trying to help him out, get the word out. He's teaching athletes how to use sound to become better at what they're doing. And it makes an incredible impact on their performance, uh, he's found. So uh, to answer the second part of that, it's I really think that the key to this, get ready for another cliche. The cliche alert just went off on, on my computer. I don't know if it went off on, on your headset for all you people listening, but it's it's to find stuff you, you are you love. Uh, it's to find stuff you're interested in. I'm as interested in in deep as I was when when I was first researching writing that, uh, you know. 10 years ago, nine years ago. And I'm as interested in, in breathing and this research now as I ever was. So I, I think it's that's the reason why you want to find a subject you have a strong connection with, because I have a feeling I'm going to be living with these, these two subjects for the rest of my life. And to me, that's that's thrilling. No, I think that that's really helpful for a lot of these listeners, framing the importance of truly being driven and having that passion towards something. For, for you, I, I know you mentioned something that you're, you're working on some current projects. Anything else right now that you're spending a ton of time thinking about? As far as what I'm working on now, um, it's a bunch of stuff associated with both breath, breath and, and deep. And um, uh, no, I did not purposely uh, create two books that you tied together like that, deep breath, breathe deep. Uh, but we're working on a uh, developing a, a mini series to take these subjects, a lot of the subjects we just talked about, and to put them into another medium, to put them into a bunch of episodes and to look at these things with a wider aperture, again, in a very objective way, but to do the deep dive into them, look at the history, look at anthropology, look at physics, look at biology. And if I have my druthers, uh, that's that's what I'll be doing for the next about year and a half is, is able to go travel the world again, meet with these people again, have some more of these experiences and, and try to digest them and put them together in a story that people might find interesting. 
Yeah. No, James, and I appreciate you you bringing that point up a minute ago. I mean, there there shouldn't be blanket prescriptions for any of this, and and we should be able to to listen to, to key points and and hey, does this work for me? Does that not work for me? Take what works for you, blend it into yourself, and, and what doesn't. So that that's a very good point there. Um, exciting stuff for you for sure. I, I'm just a relentlessly curious person as well. I see that massive bookshelf behind you. Are are there any books that that you've really enjoyed over the year? This could be any subject at all. I'd just be curious what's piqued your interest. This is a virtual background. I haven't read any of this crap here, you guys. This is I just bought this off of eBay. Now this is my my bookshelf. Um, so uh, you know, I read so many books just tied to the specific subject matter that I'm researching, and those books are useful for that for information, but they're not oftentimes the best reading in the world. <laughs> I'll, I'll just be honest; they're they're pretty dry. So, you know, uh, a book by my friend Jason Darren called Kill Shot, looking at compounding pharmacies, I thought was very interesting to look at where the vast majority of the drugs that we're taking that were prescribed actually come from and looking at how sketchy that is. Uh, that was an interesting thing. But uh, I rely on the old classics. You know, I've been reading a lot of uh, Nabokov because I've been able to to read stuff for a little bit for for pleasure now, which is a, a, a new concept because I am kind of right in between um, projects. I haven't started a, a new book yet. And so I'm just playing around with that. And I'm trying to read some more fiction. Um, I just read uh, Giovanni's Room by, by Baldwin. If you're looking at the craft, this is a fiction book. If you're looking at someone who truly understands the craft of, of writing, um, you know, that's that's a great one. So this is all over the map, man. I'm sure this is not what you want to hear, but uh, no, this actually is. I have my top ten books ready to go. I just don't. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. This is actually perfect. I, I love nonfiction fiction, reading widely. Uh, so I'm just always interested what's what's piquing your interest. Uh, and like I mentioned plenty of times on this show, uh, your book Breath: The New Science of a Lost Art uh, is one that really impacted me. So any any listeners out there, uh, I'm going to give away a few copies of the book. So shoot me an email with the subject line breath to info at whatgotyouthere.com and we'll select a few uh, a few lucky listeners and we'll send a few copies of the book because I, I really did love it. Uh, it was a total joy for me. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, we're going to make sure, James, the, the listeners are linked up with you, but I would love to know if you could sit down, have just a, a long form conversation, have a great meal with someone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you love just being able to, to spend the evening having a great conversation with? Well, since we're putting this into fantasy land, um, I would choose to have a conversation with the 20-year-old version of myself hmm. to tell him that everything you're about to do is 100% wrong. Take a left <laughs> turn immediately. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a great, I don't know if we've had anyone ever recommend that they'd be <laughs> talking to their 20-year-old selves. That's awesome. Uh, I wish we'd be able to do that. But uh, James Nestor, this, this has been a true pleasure for me. I want to make sure the listeners can stay connected with you. Where, where do you want them going, being directed, uh, just to stay on top of what you're working on? You're going to edit out all these idiotic responses, right? I, I certainly hope so. Uh, anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, Mr. James Nestor, you put an MR in front of that because uh, some jerk in Michigan took, took jamesnestor.com. So Mr. James Nestor. 
Com. I have all of the scientific references to the book up on the site. So my publisher allowed me to do that because a lot of you are sitting around saying, this guy is so full of crap. Um, look at the references be, be, before you make up your mind. Uh, there's videos on there. There's interviews with professors at Harvard and breathing experts as well. It's all for free. It's all on the website. And I'm trying to get better at this Instagram thing. I actually hired someone just yesterday to do this because I'm old and hate it. And my handle is Mr. James Nestor. And I'm only posting things related to breathing or the science therein. Fantastic. Well, James Nestor, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks a lot for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.